Thanks, Aaron. Uh, you'll find an outline for the talk on page 10 of your booklets. So if you can manage to balance somehow your booklet on one knee and your Bible on another, um, then that will be very useful. And it will help me to know uh, when you fall asleep because I'll hear the thud of your Bible hitting the floor and I'll try and liven things up a bit. <clears throat> Well, he wasn't the first, and he won't be the last. Arrested in the early hours of the morning and dragged before the court, he was another failed revolutionary, a troublemaker who claimed to be king. He threatened to throw Roman-occupied Jerusalem into turmoil at the worst possible time. The city's population was usually about 100,000, but in this week, this Passover week, it had swollen to nearly a million. People from all over Israel descending on the capital to celebrate the great festival of God's redemption, of his rescue of Israel from Egypt. It was a time of great joy, even as we longed for God to free us again from our oppressors. Into all of this walked Jesus of Nazareth, challenging the religious authorities and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, that the kingdom of God had come near. The crowds loved him. And the question was being asked everywhere, is, is this man the Messiah? Is this the one we've been waiting for? God's long-promised king who'll save us, who'll rescue us from Rome. But if the people loved Jesus, the chief priests and the teachers of the law hated him. See, over the years, the chief priests, the Sadducees, they'd come to an arrangement with the Romans. They were happy with the Roman occupation. They'd got rich under Roman rule. The Pharisees, on the other hand, well, they didn't like the Romans and they called on Israel to return to God's law. That God would hear our cry, that he would deliver us from our oppressors. But now this Jesus of Nazareth was, rest, uh, was threatening Pharisee and Sadducee alike, proclaiming forgiveness neither through the temple nor through the law of Moses, but purely on his own authority. People were saying that this homeless carpenter from Galilee might just be the Messiah, the spirit-anointed king. He humiliated our leaders and the excitement of the people was mounting. The high priest, who alone can enter God's presence, warned, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they will take away both our temple and our nation. Jesus of Nazareth needed to be humiliated. He needed to be crushed, destroyed, before things got out of hand, before the whole city erupted. And then suddenly there was a breakthrough. One of Jesus' disciples, a certain G Judas Iscariot, approached the chief priests and offered to betray him. In the early hours of the morning, he led them to an olive grove just outside Jerusalem. And after a brief scuffle, the arrest was made. Jesus went quietly and his followers fled. Dragged before the high priest and the whole Sanhedrin, Jesus was put on trial. Everyone knew what the verdict had to be. 
but the witnesses couldn't get their story straight. Finally, the high priest stepped in. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And to his horror and delight, Jesus finally responded, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. We had him, blasphemy, death. But only the Romans could execute him. So they dragged him before Pilate, the governor. This man claims to be the king. This man is a traitor to Caesar. But Pilate had his doubts. I mean, how could anyone believe that this dirty peasant was a king? He questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you've said so, and spoke no more. Pilate was amazed. I mean, clearly Jesus was no king. He had no pedigree, no money, no army, no palace. He was no threat to Caesar. So why would he remain silent? Yet Pilate had to be careful. He'd caused riots before by upsetting Jerusalem. He was on his third strike with Caesar. One wrong move and he'd be recalled to Rome in disgrace. So Pilate, the consummate politician, tried for a win-win situation. I'll punish him and then release him. It's brilliant politics. Punish Jesus because that will please his accusers. Then release him because that will please his supporters. Everyone wins. What's not to like? But the chief priests wouldn't have it. Then Pilate remembered his custom of pardoning a prisoner at Passover. And here was another chance for a win-win. Find Jesus guilty so his accusers would be satisfied and then pardon him to please his supporters. Brilliant! But again, the chief priests would not have it. Instead, they stirred up the crowd to demand the release of a rebel called Barabbas. Pilate, he knew the truth. He knew that Jesus was innocent. But what is truth against an angry mob? So Pilate released Barabbas. He had Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away, nailed him to a cross, and six hours later, he was dead. Now, that's one way of taking Jesus' death, isn't it? That it's a politically motivated perversion of justice. It's not the first, not the last. A terrible thing to happen, but just one of many. I mean, a hundred years before, a slave called Spartacus had led an uprising in Rome itself. And after being defeated, he, alongside 6,000 others, were crucified on the highway into Rome. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, preparing to spend five days looking not at Spartacus, but at Jesus. Plenty of famous leaders have been executed. Socrates was forced to drink poison. William Wallace was hanged, drawn and quartered. John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King were shot. But we don't talk about the poisoning or the quartering or the shooting. Yet we talk about the crucifixion almost without thinking about it. 
somehow Jesus' death just sort of stands out as unique. It's unique and weirdly, for the death of a hero, it's celebrated. We put crosses up on our church buildings, we hang them around our necks, we even sew them on our flag. If you count it up, the Australian flag has, I think, four crosses on it, uh, thanks to Great Britain and the Southern Cross. The cross is the symbol of the Christian religion. But if you stop and think about it, there's nothing remotely religious about the cross. I mean, other religions, they have symbols that are beautiful, calming, mystical. But the cross, well, the cross is the total opposite of that. The cross is a device that is deliberately designed for torture, for shame, for death. I don't know if you've thought about it, but wearing a cross around your neck is a little bit like wearing an electric chair. But even that doesn't really quite capture it. See, if you get sent to the electric chair, the whole purpose of it is that it should be quick and private. But the whole point of crucifixion is that it should be slow and public. Under the US Constitution... The state is forbidden from exercising cruel and unusual punishment. But the whole point of the cross is that it is cruel and unusual. For Israel, crucifixion was a sign not only that you were guilty, but that you were cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21.22 says, If someone guilty of a capital offence is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole... You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. The Jewish historian Josephus calls crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. The Roman statesman Seneca asked, Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb or letting out his life drop by drop rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest and drawing the breath of life amid long drawn out agony? he would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. The Roman senator Cicero declared, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but the liability to them, the expectation, indeed the very mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Ancient people were horrified by the cross. Interestingly, when you read the Gospel accounts, we get almost no information about the actual mechanics of crucifixion. It's not what's important to the Gospel authors. And besides, everyone that they were writing to knew how it worked. But we may not. Uh, And so gruesome as it is, we do need to know something of what is involved in it 
in order to understand why people were so horrified by it. This is the normal sort of procedure for a crucifixion. First of all, the guilty person would be stripped naked. They'd be tied to a post. And then they'd be flogged with multi-tailed whips with bits of bone and metal attached to the ends. The skin of their back would be ripped away, the underlying muscles torn. And the aim of it all was to dehumanise the victim, to turn them into nothing more than an animal, a panting, bleeding lump of meat. Then they'd be paraded through the streets to the, the jeers and the mockery of the crowds, often forced to carry the wooden crossbar on their own back. And once at the crucifixion site, the victim would be stripped naked again, thrown down on his lacerated back, and, ham- and nails hammered through his wrists and ankles, pinning him to the wood. Then the cross was lifted up, and the victim was left, naked, helpless, exposed for all their enemies to laugh at, to mock, to breathe in was no problem but to breathe out the victim had to push themselves up again ankle bones grinding against the nails their lacerated backs scraping against the wood it usually took two or three days to die two or three days of agonised gasping every breath torture wounds fly blown and festering until finally their strength gave out, they collapsed and were suffocated by the weight of their own body. Great artists have painted the crucifixion, many great artists, but if they painted it realistically, we wouldn't be hanging it up in cathedrals and art galleries. There's nothing beautiful about the crucifixion, nothing spiritual or uplifting. It's just brutal, hideous and humiliating. The first drawing we have of Jesus' crucifixion probably captures it the best. Uh, It's a piece of graffiti scratched into a wall in a classroom in Rome. Someone worshipping a crucified man with the head of a donkey. And the words underneath say, Alexamenos worships God. See what it's saying? Any God who gets himself crucified is an ass. And anyone who worships him is a fool. A few days after Jesus' death, two of his disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And a stranger appeared and asked them what they were discussing. They didn't burst out excitedly telling him how Jesus' crucifixion showed that he was the Messiah. They didn't declare that the cross had saved them from their sins. No. Luke records that they stood there, their faces downcast, as they told the stranger that Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Notice the past tense. We had hoped. We had hoped, but not anymore. So what happened? 
go from this horrific, shameful death and this tiny little group of devastated former followers, terrified that they were going to be next, to a world where billions of people claim the cross as the best thing that's ever happened, the heart of God's plan for the universe. You might say, the resurrection. And, of course, you'd be right. If Jesus had never risen from the dead, we would never have heard of him. He'd be just another crucified Jew, one of thousands executed by the Romans. But here's the interesting thing. When you read the writings of Jesus' earliest followers, the disciples, the apostles, what's interesting is that they don't simply glory in the resurrection and sweep the cross under the carpet. Jesus is risen! Well, how did he die? Oh, don't worry about that. Just focus on the risen bit. No, time and again they draw attention not just to the resurrection, not even to the fact that Jesus died, but time and time again they draw attention to the way that he died. See, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 5.30, the God of our ancestors... Sorry, let me see if I can get that up. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Acts 10.39, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. The Apostle Paul, he wrote, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is a sentence that would have sounded like madness to his contemporaries. Who would ever boast about a crucified Messiah? I can see how you'd boast about the resurrection. Someone coming back from the dead. That's amazing. That's powerful. That's awesome. But a crucifixion? No Messiah, no God would ever allow themselves to be crucified. And yet the gospel accounts draw attention to Jesus' death too. Just by their structure, they shine a spotlight on it. Matthew and Luke, they give us a couple of chapters each about Jesus' birth. And only Luke gives us anything for the entire next 28 years. 13 verses. But he gives us 130 for Jesus' last 24 hours. John gives us nothing on the first 30 years of Jesus' earthly life. But he gives 287 verses on the last week. Matthew gives us 368. Mark is so disproportionately skewed towards Jesus' death that a theologian has described Mark as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. (laughs) These are not normal biographies. The authors are obsessed with Jesus' death. Their very structure is one huge flashing sign pointing to the cross. But it's not just the structure of the Gospels, it's the details too. When his parents take Jesus, their eight-day-old son, to the temple to consecrate him, an old man named Simeon speaks to his mother. 
And he says, The child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Doesn't quite sound like the all-powerful Messiah that you're expecting. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him for the first time, he cries out, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you think, hooray, Jesus is going to take away the sin of the whole world. But how's he going to do it? Well, by being a lamb. And a lamb in this context, the lamb to a first century Jew is not some fluffy little children's superhero who bounds into the story to rescue everyone. No, Lambs take away sin by being sacrificed. Lambs die. Lambs are slaughtered. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus spends 40 days in the desert without food. And at the end of those 40 days, the devil comes and tempts him. Now grab your Bibles and come and have a look with me at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 verse 3. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell the... ironic wouldn't it at a um, talk on the cross if the speaker died part way through (laughs) I'll try not to do that chapter 4 verse 3 the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of God tell these stones to become bread Jesus answered it's written man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, what is the devil doing here? I mean, sure, if you haven't eaten for 40 days, uh, you can understand the temptation to create some bread to it. But what's with the devil inviting Jesus to prove that he's the son of God by throwing himself off the temple so God will rescue him? What's with offering him all the kingdoms of the world if only he'll bow down and worship Satan? Why would Jesus be tempted by that? They seem kind of dumb temptations. 
The first time you read Matthew, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But the second time around, it makes a lot of sense indeed. See, what is the devil doing? He's tempting Jesus to prove that he's the Messiah without suffering. He's tempting him to take the crown without the cross. It's interesting what it tells us about what Satan knows. But it's more interesting what it tells us about what Jesus knows. Right from the start, Jesus has got the cross in view. It's at the forefront of his mind. That's why the temptations are tempting. It's tempting for him because he knows the suffering that is coming. It's tempting to avoid them. But although he knows what's coming, he refuses to avoid it. Right at the start, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus types the cross into his GPS and he hits go. All through his ministry, Jesus keeps reminding his disciples and us that the cross is his destination. Uh, Come with me to John chapter 10, verse 11. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 11. One of the most famous passages in the Bible. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. If you keep a finger in John and you flip back to Mark, you'll see the same sort of thing there. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. It's the turning point of Mark's gospel when the penny finally drops for Peter. He realises who Jesus is. But isn't it interesting how Jesus responds here? Does Jesus respond by saying, that's right, boys, I sure am. (laughs) Big dog is here. We're going to rule this joint. No, verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 32 tells us that he spoke plainly about this and it is so shocking, it is so contrary to everything Peter believes about the Messiah 
that he pulls Jesus aside and he starts mansplaining to Jesus exactly what it means to be the Messiah. Look, Jesus, mate, I'm, look, I'm sorry, I know I just said that you're the Messiah, but, and I don't mean to be presumptuous, but look, dude, you're getting it all wrong. You're totally wrong. The Messiah doesn't suffer and die. The Messiah conquers. He reigns triumphant over all. But enough with the suffering and death stuff. You're getting us down. You're you're making us wonder if we got it right. What's going on? Then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. Verse 33. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Must have been a horrible shock for Peter. You know, suddenly you've gone from hero to zero. One moment you've got Jesus commending you, and the next he's calling you Satan. But inadvertently, Peter has stumbled on the very same temptation that Satan used in Matthew. It's the very same temptation. No, Jesus, you can be the king without dying. You can be the Messiah without suffering. But no, he can't. Jesus sees his suffering and death as essential, the very core of what it means to be the Messiah. Flip over to Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after three days he will rise. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or keep flipping across to chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. He's talking about his death again, his blood being poured out, his flesh given for them. And notice how deliberate all this is. Jesus' death is no accident. It's not an unfortunate, if somewhat inevitable, outcome for a man who threatened the power structures of his society. No, Jesus knows that he's going to die. But he doesn't see it as a derailment of his plans. He actually sees it as the fulfilment. The cross is not an unfortunate end to his ministry. It's the very reason he came. It's the same in John's Gospel. All through John's Gospel, you hear Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then a few days out from his death, we get to John chapter 12. Come and flip with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 23. 
John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus declares, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, Sorry. (laughs) Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very hour, very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Do you see how central the cross is to Jesus? The hour of his death is the very hour that he came for. The hour when he will be beaten bloody, stripped naked and crucified in agony is the hour of his glory. It's the hour that makes his whole ministry worthwhile. For unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Some people think that Jesus' death shows the failure of his ministry. But Jesus thinks that his ministry would have been a failure if he hadn't died. It's by dying that he will bring judgment on the world. It's by dying that he drives out Satan. It's by being lifted up from the earth on the cross that he draws all people to himself. And it's only at the moment of his death that Jesus can cry out, it is finished. We're so used to the idea that Jesus died on a cross that we kind of forget how scandalous it is. To claim that the creator of the universe died the worst kind of death, the death of a slave, the death of a criminal, the death of someone cursed by God. Helpless, humiliated, naked, ashamed before his own creatures. The whole idea of the cross is shocking. And yet Jesus' teachings about his death, they're not obscure. They're not difficult parables. They don't pop up in random encounters or or chance conversations. Jesus deliberately goes out of his way to state that the cross is at the very centre of who he is and what he came to do. The cross is no accident. It's not the unfortunate end of a failed revolutionary. It's not the tragic tale of a well-intentioned teacher crushed by the system. It's not even the 
unavoidable byproduct of God entering a hostile world. Now, it's not a byproduct at all. It's the whole point. It's the whole reason God entered the world in the first place. From the very start of his ministry, Jesus plugs the cross into his GPS, and that's where he goes. That's where he's headed. That's why he came. For Jesus, the cross is at the very centre. And so it's got to be at the centre for his followers too. The cross is the pole that holds up the whole tent. You get the pole wrong, you get it off centre, and everything else collapses. The cross is the beating heart of the gospel. It's the beating heart of Jesus. It's the beating heart of God. And if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to know the Father, then the cross needs to be the beating heart of us too. But I have left some fairly major questions unanswered, haven't I? Like, why is the cross at the centre of Jesus' plans? Why is it so important? What does it achieve? And how? We're going to spend the next four days looking at those questions. We're going to be ranging through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation and just about everything in between. And at the end of the week, I can tell you now, we will have only just scratched the surface. But by God's grace, as we wrestle with his word, as we chew it over with each other, well, by the end of the week, we'll have scratched just a little bit deeper. Our minds, by God's grace, will be a little bit more like the mind of Christ. Our hearts will be more filled with love as we draw closer to the heart of the gospel, the heart of Jesus, the very heart of God himself. I think it's going to be a great week. I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray that God will use it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be at work among us by your spirit this week as we engage with your word, as we learn about your son and his death. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we might grasp all that the cross means, that we might know you better, love you more, And be eager, joyful servants of you. The God who sent his son to die on the cross. And we ask it in his name. Amen.